Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Centralverse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number 49. We are delighted to have the historian of the Federal Reserve System and senior economist and economic advisor at the Chicago Fed, uh, Jonathan Rose, uh, joining the show. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Caleb. And back with us, as always, Stephen Kelly. Good to see you, Stephen. Hey, guys. Let's start with the the historian job, Jonathan. Give us a little rundown, if you don't mind, not just how you landed uh, into this incredibly cool position, but also kind of if you if you don't mind, just a minute or two on uh, on on what the position is and like who had it before to the degree that it even existed. Sure. Well, um, let me start off on a super strong note by just giving the disclaimer that I'm speaking for myself here and nobody else in the Fed system. Um, and and now what I would say is that the the Fed historian position, um, you know, it's an opportunity to connect history and policy. And uh, it was created originally for the centennial of the Fed, which was 2013. Um, and they did a number of things. Gary Richardson was the first and only previous historian. He's an academic at uh, UC Irvine and um, perhaps the, I don't know, the preeminent historian of the yeah. Fed. Um, but uh, and so they they did a number of things, including setting up um, a website, federalreservehistory.org, um, with all, you know, which I just think of as providing like public goods and basic facts and history about the Fed system and financial history. And, um, and some other things for the centennial, including the, there was a big push at the time to make sure that uh, records related to the financial crisis in 08 were being preserved appropriately. Sure. I, that was something that Gary really focused on a lot. Um, and now, and then it was empty for a number of years. Gary went back to academia and uh, I just took this on in November. So about, well, no, seven months ago, I guess. Um, and uh, uh, the positions, you know, it's a, it's a little different. Obviously the Federal Reserve History website already exists. The centennial has come and gone. Uh, there's no 110th anniversary celebration, but, um, you know, in terms of like my, I told you, you know, what, what I, what I enjoy doing. So I've been in the Fed system since 2009. I, I had the luck of being on the job market at the height of the financial crisis. And I was, I was happy. I actually always thought it's funny. I always thought I wanted to work at the Fed. I told my undergrad advisor that when I was an undergrad and she told me that's nice, but never tell anybody that again because nobody in grad school is ever going to want to talk to you. So I didn't. And then, and then the funny thing, I you know, my I think I'm pretty sure my advisors in grad school wrote me a recommendation saying you'd be great at a policy institution. So there and there I ended up, uh, but I wasn't allowed to say it. Um, yeah. So anyway, but I've been in the I was at the board for nine years, and now I'm at the Chicago Fed, and and more recently, and the the, the historian position is is based in St. Louis. Although it's a, it's a system position, it's a, it's unique in that sense. The but the system doesn't hire people. Um, only a reserve bank or the board hires people. So it was assigned to St. Louis because St. Louis has a lot of great history functions, including the the Fraser um, Digital Library. That if you've done any research on financial history, you've probably come across, um, as well as some other things. Um, so anyway, your question was like, what am I? What do I want to do with the position? Um, you know, Caleb, I I just enjoy you know, operating at the interaction of, of policy and history. And this yeah. recent banking crisis has been, you know, a good example of that. Um, you know, I, I find that like at when there's, you know, novel, fast moving events, people often turn to history as a source of antecedents to understand things. Yep. Barry Green talked about this actually in his um, 
2013 Economic History Association presidential speech about the use of history as a source of analogies. And it's tough, actually, because historians are creating a menu of analogies in the past, and you, you build that up over time. But if you're trying to build analogies for what's happening right now, you're always going to be behind because that, that's a long-term thing. So you need to build up a menu and draw on it. And yeah, this banking crisis was a good example of stuff I worked on 10 years ago about bank runs. All of a sudden, I could draw down on that because I had a lot of a lot of accumulated knowledge. Um, another way of connecting history to the present, stop me if I'm going on too much yeah, about it. But it's like you know, just understanding the origins of the present, right? So... If you've ever worked in government, right? Um, you know, if you work at monetary affairs at the board, those people have the Federal Reserve Act in their heads. <laughs> they know what the authorities are, what you're allowed to do, uh, you know, what 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 Congress and the president have asked, you know, the institution to do. Um, but you know, those laws embed a theory of the past, uh, and so you know, that's really only the beginning. You need to understand why the law assigns you that function and what happened before that the law is trying to to change. So, um, you know, I feel like that's just another use of history is is understanding what it was in the past that policymakers were responding to when they assigned an agency the responsibility to do something. Um, and then, ironically, sometimes I think that history can be a way of imagining a different future. Um, I'll give you an example of this. Last year, I was working on on crypto. And um, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, I'm really glad that you as an economic historian are, are, you know, doing this work on crypto, because I think we need somebody that's sort of like not stuck to the present financial system that can imagine different institutional setups. And that's actually, I mean, that's like, that's the deep, hard skill of economic history of, you know, just understanding the way things were in the past. And that like, it, you know, <laughs> you get that slowly and, uh, you know, it, it's it's never a journal article. Just this is these are the facts about the way things were organized back then. But um, it helps you sort of you know not be stuck to um, this moment in time, which will pass. Yeah. Um, so I've had the luck, you know, over the past fifteen years, you know, I've written a few speeches about history for for governors or things like that, or and you know, I'm just sort of I've always been sort of an on call source of hey Jonathan do you know anything about this random thing that happened in economic history that might be relevant and, and sometimes I deliver on that although it's it's hard to do that every time um yeah. and so and then sorry one last thing on the Fed history yeah, position I mean we have this Fed history website and and Gary did a great job of of setting it up it's actually kind of amazing you know the amount of content he put on there but even then I would say that it has you know some gaps that I'm trying to fill it's it's super strong on monetary policy. And of, and of course, that was the top priority. But, um, you know, the Fed has other functions, soup and reg, payments, um, uh, community development. Um, yeah. I'm sure there are others that I'm just giving yeah. you off the top of my head. So um, filling out some of that stuff um, a little bit more. Um, and then personally, I also wanted to try to increase sort of the um, attention to racial history that the and and the extent to which the Fed is involved in it on on, on the website, um, just to just so that you know people from different backgrounds, if surfing to the site, might find you know people on the site, for example, that look like them or, or topics yep. that might be more sort of like in line with the things that they have tended to think about in their own histories. So, um, and this is a good example of interacting history and policy. So I knew that the federal regulators are. Um, modernizing the implementation of the Community Reinvestment Act this year. 
as I understand it, the rule is going to come out sometime sometime this summer, I think, although I, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, that that's a good example. The CRA embeds a theory of the past of redlining. And so, um, you know, I thought the website, it, uh, it hadn't, it had an essay about the CRA, but it, it, uh, it you know, it, it had nothing about the modernization or why the modernization was necessary and what has happened. You know, the financial system has changed a lot since the last time the CRA was, was modified in 95. Um, and so, you know, what what changed in the financial system? Um, what is the relevance of the pre-1968 history of redlining for today? So we've got an essay out now on Community Reinvestment Act. We've got one on redlining. We've got one on the Fed's community development function, which came out of, it, it was originally a response to um, the, the CRA. Um, so that's that's the kind of, that's the that I mean that that to me is is a sweet spot. If I if there's a major policy initiative like that and I can help sort of like contextualize it, provide the historical background, that's great. Set the conversation. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting that and, and cool that your your job is you know that in the title like I introduced you is both historian and then but you're also have got the you're still an economic advisor. You're still. Uh, in the the policy discussions actively, not just as a, you know, hey, yeah, random Actually, questions. I, <laughs> I'm sure that's tough to balance sometimes. But I, I hate to I hate to navel gaze too much, but yeah, I mean, actually, um, I, I asked for that. Um, yep. you know, I asked to stay involved in policy. I I felt feel like I've always really benefited from the, that interaction. Half my history work has come from you know trying to understand the history of some policy question that that I had to work on, and I was I was also you know a little afraid that I would become unemployable if I let that policy muscle atrophy um, since totally, you know, the market for historians isn't exactly, you know, booming. Correct. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lucky as it is. If you want to be an historian, economic history is, is a much better market as I understand it than other types of history. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm six months into this. I'm trying to keep alive history policy and some more academic style research um yeah. because you don't anyway so uh and it's it's uh yeah I, and one I'm, more question on I'm this one and then, and then we want to yeah. jump into and then we want to yeah. jump into the like an example of this which was really cool and really relevant from an article that you wrote last week but one last yeah. question is for right now is it kind of just is it kind of just i mean i know there's fraser and i know there's the federal reserve history.org it's dot yep. org, right? That, that yep. there's the website, you know, and you've got Fred and you've got a few others. Uh, and I, I know they there are librarians that are uh, kind of staffing those. Does your job, the portion of your job that's historian, is that have other staff? Does it envision growing? Does it envision? Yeah, there's there's more. Um, and uh, but uh. It, this I'm going to start throwing out buzzwords that uh, you know you'd you'd have to be a uh, you'd have to work in the Fed system to really care. But there's a there's a committee on historical preservation that was set up for the centennial, and the the historian is a quote ex officio member of that. Uh, so yes. you know there's um, there's this internal his, historic preservation, particularly for the reserve banks, right? Because the the board yeah. is part of the federal government, but the reserve banks yeah. aren't subject to the same laws. National archives, uh, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, but yeah, working with the Fraser team, you know, trying to identify uh, new collections to add to Fraser. So if anybody out there has ideas or things you'd like to see on Fraser, happy to get suggestions. Amazing, amazing. All right, amazing. Let's jump in then to this in action, which we saw last week, and which was the uh, we've been wanting to talk to you about the history position and this uh, this article that you wrote last week. 
or earlier this week, whenever it was, uh, recently on on the speed of bank runs uh, was a perfect opportunity. So I'm gonna kind of just kick it off with one question, and then we'll and then we'll really dive into it. Talk really briefly both in in this thinking of bank runs just in general, and this was kind of one of the big takeaways of uh, is not just now but in the past this distinction between uh, the the accounts held by households and consumers. Uh, the smaller denomination accounts and the major corporations, the big, the big money accounts. Yeah. So one way of thinking about this, Caleb, uh, it's funny. If if you read people who write about bank runs that happened in 1984, continental Illinois, 2008 at Northern Rock in the UK and Wachovia, Washington Mutual in the US, and then these banks in 2023, in all those instances, uh, people writing about them say, you know, it's really funny there's there's no lines at these banks but there's yeah. there's a run going on and and can you guess what they turn to when they want to give you a visual of of the lines at the bank what movie the yeah it's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life yeah and if you if you open up greg Mankiw's principles textbook uh yep. you know in the, the paragraph on bank runs talks about it's a wonderful life yep. so this is one of my if you get you know if you get to know me caleb i have a number of rants but you know <laughs> it's a wonderful life is the worst <laughs> movie to, to to visualize a bank run for starters do you know the name of the institution that george bailey ran and it's a wonderful life it's a savings and loans right yeah it's, 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 it's a the, bank yeah it's the bailey <laughs> brothers building a loan yeah. which is you know and so this is all, something that maybe only a, a financial historian would care about but <laughs> What's 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 important about building loans is they didn't allow they didn't have to allow withdrawals on demand. They had the ability to invoke delays, um, unlike uh, unlike banks for demand deposits. You know they have to be paid out, or you know in, in, under most legal circumstances the bank gets closed. And this is actually important though because if you watch this movie, um, Bailey says to his customers, "Actually, I don't have to pay you out on demand." Remember your agreement, and they and they all and the, and then the run stops. <laughs> so it actually works. So there is no actual run in this movie. There's a bunch of people that line up, but they don't withdraw anything. Or maybe I think there's maybe one person that does. And then they talk about the banker down the street, and they say, "Well, I'm just going to sell my shares," and because they're technically they're buying shares in a BNL, they're not they're not make, they're not making the deposits. And they say, "Well, I'm going to go sell my shares to the banker down the street." Um, and so the, the movie is actually incredibly historically accurate and interesting. Um, and I, it's 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 so funny that it's an example of a bank run because there there it wasn't a bank and there was no run. Um, <laughs> so, but but what happens I think is you know we turn to these. We, of course, it's it's natural we turn to these images. And there's if you go on the internet, you can find all kinds of images from the Great Depression of people lining up outside banks. But I don't know when I started to sit down to really study this stuff, and I and I get the feeling Steve has done the same kind of work. You know, it, just the arithmetic compels you to look at the large depositors, and the the large depositors are not peons like you and me, and they don't stand in lines, right? Yeah. In the in yeah. the depression, uh, if they had to, they wrote a check or they initiated a a wire transfer from another bank, and it went out over the telegraph lines. Uh, and 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 nowadays, you know, they of, of course they're not standing in lines, and so I don't know. Um, it's it, in many ways, Caleb. I I like writing things that are completely obvious 
<laughs> because there's a there's a far there's a far smaller chance that one day I'm going to be proven wrong. If if, if my downside risk is mostly somebody just telling me I'm, I'm writing something obvious, but you know, of course, bank runs are driven by uninsured depositors, and of course, that's dominated by the largest accounts, and of course, those largest accounts are are large corporations. It really couldn't be any other way. Um, and, but if you know. It's important to understand how large these accounts are. Some of them have hundreds of millions of dollars. At Silicon Valley Bank, as I understand it, the biggest one was the stablecoin circle that had something like 3.3 billion, um, which is, uh, you know, if you have three point, by the way, if you have 3.3 billion dollars in a bank, you can afford to hire a financial advisor to give you advice on um, the risks that you're taking. <laughs> so anyway, I mean. Uh, yeah, and, and so talk yeah, talk about right. the talk about the the that tech. That was one of the lines that stuck out stuck out to me in both. And you can you can either be go into specifics or just in in general of of the tech. And you can talk about you know Silicon Valley and and and, yeah. and Signature or Continental or something from the GFC or something from the Great Depression. But yeah. this idea that the the tech was there, you know, even like you said, you just said it in the in the depression that a wire could even happen yeah. in the 30s was not something i was really thinking about in the especially you know that far back but even in the continental you had some you had some data there talk a little bit about the tech of uh, yeah. and and how that affects the the speed and because that's been one of the stories about the march 2023 story is that it's all a uh, social media yeah. and a it's like a two-part it's a social media and it's a bank app story and t- tell us oh, what you what kind yeah. of some some of the stuff that you saw there yeah, my entryway into that was just to read the reports that the Fed has put out and the FDIC and the New York and California regulators. And they they tried to write down some ideas for why bank runs were faster in 2023. And I, as I as I read the reports, they 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 had three factors. One was technology speeding up this the withdrawals. Another was social media allowing instant communication and um coordination. And then the third was just the nature of the depositor bases at, at these banks in particular. And so the technology thing, I mean, I let's let me be clear. I I, I agree that tech, it's probably easier to make a bank withdrawal than it was in, in 2008 or even 1984. I remember I, I think I read some guy that was a SVB depositor. He was at the dentist and he pulled out his phone and, and made a withdrawal. Uh, you know, so you don't have to you know you don't have to be at a com- computer terminal anymore. You can do it from your phone. But um, realistically, I feel like that's most likely to speed up the 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 speed of withdrawals by maybe several hours or a day or two, depending on what you're comparing to. Um, you know, suppose that somebody wrote a check to withdraw their funds, which would be not the best way. But suppose you know, how long would that check take to clear? My understanding is is it's a day or two nowadays, and and actually that's just. I'm not even sure that really increase. That's a difference in the speed of somebody making withdrawal. The speed is the same. It's just the 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 funds don't arrive in the new account, new account for a day or two because of the interbank delays, right? Um, but anyway, I mean, I remembered because I, I wrote a paper about Continental Illinois several years ago about its 1984 run, and I just remembered these descriptions from regulators saying that Continental also had a lightning fast electronic run, and um, and so I, I just thought to myself. Um, you know, I've heard this before. I want to. I want to understand. I want to really open this up. And actually, it'd be interesting to have a conversation because I'm not sure I got to the the absolute bottom of it. But um, 
you know, so I started doing a little bit of research, some light research on just what exactly was the technology at Continental. And actually, I was amazed at what I was able to find because, for one thing, the, a Continental executive testified before Congress in 1982 in a anti-money laundering hearing, which I, I guess anti-money laundering is actually a really helpful way if you want to understand the technology of banking in the past, because they cared mm -hmm. a lot about this. Um, and they were concerned about data flow internationally. So they grilled this Continental Illinois executive about how their data was going around the world and he described their network and he described how they had data grade lines from this company called Telenet that would go from their their customers into their mainframe computers and they could make automated withdrawals to 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 their own accounts at other institutions um you know through through their computers with no manual intervention um so i was so i mean i i, I sort of knew that right because i i knew that these that Continental's run was described as lightning fast, but I can't say I really understood that banks had adopted that technology. That was actually by the late seventies, it looks like. Then I looked it up on the Fed side and you can you can find sort of these operational reports in the, at reserve banks in the seventies talking about hey, how they're linking up their computers to depository institutions in their districts um and how most of their wire transfers were being done in this automated way by the late 70s at least with their their large banks um and again i was kind of blown away at how sophisticated it was um at, at that time and, and so i mean i think that's a lesson there's a there's a small danger of anachronism when thinking about bank runs in the past like you know they didn't have the same technology but uh, you know, people always hated delays, and they, and it's it's actually remarkable how efficient a lot of systems were in the in the past, and how fast they were able to get a lot of things done. Um, yeah, and then it, you know, then you get to two thousand eight, and you got to figure that that stuff has been in place by for twenty or thirty years by that point. Um, uh, you know, and and so for sure, household depositors and small business depositors probably were not doing these like mainframe terminal connections in 1984. Sure. Uh, but they but they could have by 2008. But you know, maybe not completely. But even then, Caleb, I I still don't quite understand what what the what the change in speed is like. Not that you know. Again, what I told you before is like there there are all these stories of banks having runs in in those years where the teller lines were empty, so they weren't going to the teller lines. Um, but even if they did, how long do you have to wait at the teller line to withdraw? A few hours? Um, you know, maybe they were calling them up and that's some delay, but that's not a, you know, so Continental Illinois, it's run to 10 days and they lost 30% of their liabilities. Whereas Silicon Valley Bank lost something like 25% one day and 60% was scheduled to go out the next. And you, you just can't explain that difference as far as I can tell because of technological limitations in 1984. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, or information because you know the 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 run on Continental was 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 widely known and reported in every on the wire services and every major paper by the first day, so um, that's that's you know so I, I I'm not disagreeing that technology matters, but I'm I'm trying to understand exactly what we mean by it and and who benefited and and how much. Yeah, yeah, no, interesting, Stephen. Jump in here with what uh, what you've written on 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 this stuff, and what was your response to uh, to seeing this this argument on 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 the role or the degree that technology impacted the the run here? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess just to just to echo Jonathan, the the hardest part of that story 
you know, even if it's hard to get to the bottom of how many hours, you know, the guy at the dentist saves, it's not the guy at the dentist who takes down the firm, right? It's, he's not, that's not the circle CEO transferring $3.3 billion. Um, you know, even apps and stuff like that have limits of what they'll let you do. And we know that this run, like all runs, like Jonathan was saying, are primarily institutional. I mean, just the mathematics of it, as well as deposit insurance and depositor attentiveness. Um, I look back at a, at, a, at a conversation I had with a large bank CFO from hmm. um, 2008, and just the words he used could have been easily applied to the narrative that's 2023. I mean, he, he, he was saying like, you know, when, when one hedge fund pulls money, you think the whole street doesn't know that, like, you know, this whole network of people, you think they don't know that. And then he go, his, his exact words were, and then it goes digital and the whole thing is over. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, because it's yeah. just on Bloomberg chat and whatever. I mean, we can see people talking on Twitter now that we couldn't see on Bloomberg chat in 2008, but, the big money is always communicating. Um, and it, it's not clear to me, you know, that, that apps, you know, made the difference. I, I'm sure JP Morgan has a great app. They probably have one of the best apps in the business and they had deposit inflows. Right. So it's, it's just right. not enough to explain uh, what we've seen, which was basically rot. I mean, just, just bad banking that just unfolded so quickly. Um and it wasn't even in all cases, right? Credit Suisse, they've been they've been in the paper for months, years. I mean, it depends when you start the timeline. <laughs> so First Republic lasted for, you know, six weeks. Um, it's just it's just not a clear story to tell. And it's so frustrating to me, especially the social media component, because every every report mentioned social media, they all mentioned it, all, especially that, you know, the bank execs of the failed banks love pointing to social media. And there's been no citation. I mean, at least with something like, you know, Wall Street's pulling funds uh, over email, over wires, whatever, you can, you know, the New York Fed can say, according to market color, like according to our market contacts, this is what we heard. We're not even getting that in, out of any of these reports. There's no nobody saying, oh, you know, the FDIC didn't say, oh, we spoke to large depositors who were f afraid of what they saw on Twitter. Like, not even that. It just says social media, social media, social media. It's it's all in a circle. Um, it's just hard to write good policy based on on that. I mean, is there some truth to it? Maybe, but we literally have nothing. Yeah. Um, I'll just say there, Steve. I feel like we're you know we're living through history. We've gotten our first look backs. We've got you know these 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 reports from the ma major regulators. It's not clear to me that these are going to be the last reports. Um, right, we might get more information. Um, so we'll, we'll we might find out more um about about social media for example um but uh you know and i for sure i i read you know this twitter thread about uh a, a svp depositor talking about how he had a group chat with um other svp depositors with the same venture capital backer so i i mean i believe that they uh they coordinated um but, oh sure uh, yeah sure. but but the evidentiary basis is anecdotal and um I, i'd love to get some some better data on it yeah, and I would draw a line between, you know, common financial networks communicating over chat versus, oh, this was a Twitter-based bank run. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the incentives the really aren't bank there. The bank run paper was interesting, right? Because that, that, that paper was actually about stock prices rather than 
actual outflows, right? Are you thinking about that paper? You're thinking about something broader. Well, that paper and the banks and you know the 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 investigative reports have all been social media. I mean, it 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 would be yeah. to me. It's like it's like analogous to the short selling thing. Like every exec from a failed bank always blames short sellers, but usually, like the chair of the FDIC doesn't take the baton on that narrative. You know, like so it's weird to see all the all the agencies uniformly say oh, social media, social media, and not even citing anything. Um, so it, it, the I, I would draw a distinction between the institutional chats happening over text, which, like I said, always happened. That happened in 2008. Those conversations were happening over the phone in 84 versus or Bloomberg, like, oh, Twitter. The Bloomberg, by the way, game. Bloomberg direct messaging, I'm pretty sure, is a lot of yeah, exactly. a lot of people. Which, which we can't it. analyze, right? Yeah. And we can analyze yeah. Twitter sentiment. We can't analyze Bloomberg chat sentiment. We just don't have the data. Yeah, so we'll have to kind of, I, th I think I think what you guys are getting at is is exactly the is exactly that the, the, at this point it's just not enough to say on the on the social media side and it and it's kind of a uh, innocent until proven guilty on that and there's definitely the evidence just isn't isn't there yet. I'll, I'll about, give you I'll give you one last anecdote, Caleb. Which I, yeah, please. I asked, I asked my dad who used to run the finances for a school district in New York how he used oh, to make. Okay. How did you make bank transfers? Is my question. And he said. He said that the way he liked to do it was fax and he would send it in and, you know, they they had a few thousand employees from what I recall. And so he, he had certainly more than $250,000. Sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was more than that, but it's none of my business really. But and he told me that uh, he he would get a confirmation within 15 minutes that had been processed and it would. And uh, so, I mean, uh, <laughs> fax, telegraph, phone, um Let's you know things. Things might have been faster than uh, we than we than we might remember. Then we assume. Then we assume. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that uh, that was that was briefly mentioned, but not in too too much de detail in the, in the paper, was Northern Rock. Uh, I wanted to give you a chance to add any any color from that experience because that's the that's one of the you know that's one of the pillars of the of the gfc yeah. narrative is 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 northern rock uh both you jonathan and, and steven as well feel free to jump in on on that experience and how that kind of fits into this uh this point that we're making here yeah well i'm american centric to a fault but I, yeah. somebody emailed me that i used to know at the board after i wrote this paper saying have you thought about northern rock because i think it it's kind of um along the same lines of what you were talking about um, but I, I had read, read Hyun Shin, he has a nice paper on Northern Rock and World Economic Perspectives, I think, in which he talks about how the large sophisticated institutional clients had a silent run, I guess, in the summer of 2007. And then um, in September 2007, uh, there were re retail withdrawals, but his point was kind of they were late to the party. Um, and uh, and they were only something like a quarter of, of the bank's liabilities. Um, but actually, I kind of wish I had included it because that, that made me go look up the report that um, the UK government wrote about it afterwards. And, and their run was was really fast. Um, I, I didn't quite appreciate it. I, I estimated they have a they don't give the data, but they have a chart and you can sort of get, get a rough figure that about like 40 Five percent of their deposits left in about twelve days, um, 
and a lot of that was in just uh, five or six days. So maybe 20 to 30% in just five or six days. So, um, and those were retail deposits. A lot of them were postal deposits. Um, I, as I understand, there were some online, some, some online options, but um, th that wasn't the, the, the main thing. Um, so anyway, I mean, I, it's just, it, it's just another data point that I wish I had included on, on, on a run that was, that was really fast in, um, in 2008. I don't know, Steve, have you studied it? Yeah, I, I just, I remember talking about it a little bit in early March, just because people were talking about SVB as sort of the first digital bank run. But, uh, like you said, that the Northern Rock story was really silent for so long. Um, that that was really, you know, wholesale sort of online type type funding that that sort of disappeared and then became public. And then they finally got that picture of the people exactly. lined up outside yep. <laughs> that, that they needed for the rest of the GFC. So correct. Yeah, <laughs> I needed that image. So then I, I want to uh, kind of wrap up by, by bringing it back to to policy itself. There are at least two two versions of, of, of policy that, that are, that come immediately to mind. And the first is, uh, is the like supervision. Cause like you could imagine if the story gets embedded that this at, that this was caused by social media and bank apps, you could imagine that a new, you know, checkbox that the supervisors have to do is some kind of, you know, examination of the bank's apps and make sure that they're, you know, like Stephen was saying that the limits that they have to like formalize the rules on the limits of what can happen in an app and, and that they're, you know, maybe it becomes junior examiners job to check their social profiles. And, you know, there's, you could imagine that, you know, things I could imagine, you know, there were all sorts of like, you could imagine like silly things like uh, naming conventions. There were all sorts of, you know, things on uh, social media of like uh, uh, the first Republic bank in Oregon is not the first Republic bank that is having the run. Like you could imagine like those on the supervisory side. You could imagine also, you know, are there kind of emergency responses? So not in the preventative side, but in like the emergency angle uh that relates to to these and if it's not tech then is it is yeah. there something else so as you thought as you were writing i mean i know you're just bringing the kind of per, the 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 historical perspective to the conversation uh, but i wonder if you thought about what the policy implications yeah. are of maybe de-emphasizing a little bit the the tech aspect of this well i told you Kill, that coincidentally last year i was working on crypto right so i i time <laughs> Uh, I'm. I have this odd confluence of topics that I happen to know things about because, you know, what was what was really historically unusual at these banks, as far as I can tell, was the depositor bases. Um, yeah. And Silvergate and Signature were, you know, more or less the two main crypto banks that served crypto asset customers. Um, they both had these like payment networks where. Uh, different market makers and traders and exchanges would have accounts so they could make real-time payments with each other. And like, for example, I, I figure one of the reasons why you might be on this is if is arbitrage price differences across exchanges. So you can move money in real time um, and, 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 and do that arbitrage. Um, so, um, and they, they were big, like I think Silvergate, it was like 90% of their 
deposits were from crypto asset customers and a signature yeah. was was 30% at, at peak, I think, although 20% by the end of September. Um, and so I don't know if I, if I had to come up with like the type of depositor that's most likely to run immediately <laughs> and, and in a coordinated fashion, that that's a pretty good portrait of it, right? They're all, they're all in the same industry. The whole purpose of them having deposits is to move them instantly. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. and also they can observe each other's behavior because they know if they're not making, because they're making payments to each other, right? So if they see other people cease making payments, they know they've left the network. Um, and of course they all know each other because they're all in crypto. So, um, you know, that, that, that's that's pretty unusual for my sense. I mean, it's not unusual to have low insurance coverage. Continental had 15% insurance coverage and you can find other banks, especially the big ones that have low insurance coverage in history. Um, and, you know, not to push the crypto angle too much, but, you know, Silvergate had a, Silvergate it often gets lost in these conversations, but yeah. it was the, it, it was the smallest of these banks, but it was the first to have a run. I tried to bar benchmark it in the paper I wrote. Um, I, I think it probably happened after the failure of FTX. Yeah. Um, and it looks like it took about seven days and they lost like half of their deposits. Um, and then they announced they were closing on March 8th, I, I think at 4.30 p.m., and within the same half hour, that was when Silicon Valley Bank announced they were raising capital. And um, and their CEO mentioned this in his testimony that he thought that their their announcement about capital was had been taken badly because they had been linked to to Silvergate. Um, not to say that there wasn't anything else going on at Silicon Valley Bank. There there were other independent issues, and their crypto asset deposits were you know smaller. I think they had. Um, this these stablecoin deposits and and some stuff from from the failed exchange BlockFi, but um, uh, there's this crypto asset angle here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and I will say to the to the I think it's important to take a step back there and recognize that the federal regulators have done a lot to um, address the risks of crypto assets in the banking system. So there's a series of letters they've put out over the past year. You know requiring information and pre-notification and pre-approval -pre about crypto asset activities. But I can't say they didn't see that coming. I, I think they did. Um, I, I think it's, it's a little surprising um, how big of an impact Silvergate had uh, on the rest of the banking system. Uh, Cause it wasn't that, I think it was like a $13 billion bank. Um, and as for Silicon Valley Bank, I think everybody knows that their depositors or a lot of them were connected to each other because of common venture capital backing. So what's the implication of that for policy, Caleb? It's that um, if, if you have depositors that are similar to or connected to each other, they're, they're more likely to behave in the same way. And so you can have regulation or supervision that tries to get that information and and um, calibrate deposit outflow assumptions or deposit insurance pricing Um parameters to that kind of information um if that's important on the other hand if you think that um you're you're likely to have um high, high rates of withdrawals across the board for all depositors because of technology then you really don't need to do that calibration you need to raise deposit outflow assumptions for everybody i do have to say those deposit outflow assumptions would have to be really severe right because if you have yeah. to prepare for your deposits leaving and all of them in basically one or two days um I don't know what you could do. You could yeah. you could probably do a better job of prepositioning collateral with a lender of last resort, like the Fed, because <laughs> um, yeah. that seemed to be a problem in a couple of these cases, just from yeah. my read of the public reports. Um, 
I will say though that if if there's a weakness in what I just said, I'm not as confident I understand what happened at First Republic. I, I'm not as aware that their depositors were as connected to each other. Um, their, their run seems to have been a little bit slower, but still pretty darn fast. It seemed like 20% the first day, maybe something like 20% the next, and then another 10 or 15 over the next, next several days. Um, I, I just haven't seen as much information, but I'm not aware they had the same the, the same types of connections as the, as at the other banks. So I, I'd like to learn more about that, and maybe when we do, if and when we do learn more about First Republic, we'll we'll have to reevaluate everything I just said. Yeah, yeah, Caleb, I would say a few things on that. I mean, yeah. first to first to Jonathan's point. I mean, on crypto stuff, you know, I've been I've had a problem with uh, stable coins making deposits in banks for a long time, and <laughs> what what I remember writing maybe a year or so ago is that basically they, they sort of end run or do they sort of short circuit the normal like fire sale path. You know, you can think yeah. of like uh, an asset sell off starting in the riskiest assets and moving to the safest stuff, uh, you know, crypto equities, junk debt, safe debt. Okay. Now the banking system's implicated and deposits are implicated with crypto, you know, it, it, because of this on chain off chain thing, if sort of the crypto economy goes bad, you immediately want to get your your money off chain, which means deposits are, are pulled out of the system. Um, so the, it it was always sort of a risk that that when the crypto markets went bad, there was going to be some banking stress, which is you know a really short path uh, from crypto to banking that you don't necessarily want. And thankfully the the amounts were small, um, so there were other things going on here, obviously. But that was sort of the the path. Yeah. Um, just on. Um, what we think about with regulation going forward and if in, you know, for this, this possible tech issue or, or whatever it may be. I mean, one thing we've seen is that limiting withdrawals isn't super effective. You know, we've kind of tried this with Emma with money market funds and what we've seen is it just sort of makes the run happen sooner. Like if you think gates are going to come into play or you can only do a certain amount per day um, that's very difficult. And, and the other thing is just like, you know, we've seen, for instance, it was just announced the SEC sort of gathering information on what on depositor behavior sort of around these days. And, and yeah, fine. Look for fraud. Look for somebody lying to somebody you know, lying to their investors or whatever. But it, it will be a shame if we if this if we sort of start blaming depositors or, or putting limits on depositors. I mean, p part of what you pay for as a as a bank depositor um, you know, famously getting basically nothing on your checking account and your savings account relative to what you can get in, in money markets is that your bank doesn't show up in the headlines. I mean, that's like part of what you pay for, regardless of whether it's justified. Um, so bank runs sort of justify themselves. Like you, you should have every right as a depositor to say, look, you know, just throw your hands up when this kind of stuff happens. Um, so that just doesn't strike me as the, as the most fruitful route for for regulation but we'll see yeah. how it goes yeah that we will all right any last uh any last any last words jonathan anything on the on the article or, or other things that you're working on that we that you'd like to mention before we wrap up um i think i'm good caleb thanks for uh thanks for talking yeah thank thank you to thank you to both of the to both of you and uh listeners we will uh be back in your feeds here uh very shortly thanks for listening